0: plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Simon Long, the finance editor of The Economist. Welcome to Money Talks. Coming up on our program this week, how to get tough on Chinese steel.
1: They could go in with a hammer or or a chisel, or they could do nothing. They could say, look, hey, we've got this report that's found that that you were doing wrong. Let's start a negotiation. Otherwise, we will hit you with a hammer.
0: Why the great Indian middle class
2: may not be as big as you thought. You have to be very sceptical when company chief executives trundle through India and give interviews saying India is going to be their next huge market.
0: And have you resolved to go to the gym this year?
3: As a good field journalist, I have, of course, given it a go, um, and I can safely tell you it's murder.
0: But first, could we be on the brink of President Trump's first real trade war? The catalyst could be steel imports. Next Monday is the deadline for the Department of Commerce to declare whether steel imports are a threat to America's national security. If it decides they are, America, the world's biggest steel importer, will have to decide how to protect itself. The problem, however, is a fundamental one. The world simply has too much steel making capacity, above all in China. So, what can be done? Sameer Keynes is our economics correspondent and joins me now. Hello, Sameer. Hello. Firstly, Sameer, what do we expect the Department of Commerce to conclude? Are steel imports a strategic threat to America?
1: I would be stunned if they did not find that steel imports were a threat. I think that next week the Commerce Department is going to find that steel is vital for America's critical infrastructure um, and, and therefore something needs to be done. Now, economists will dispute whether something really does need to be done over that. But the argument that they will make will be that, well, first of all, you have the steel industry that is supplying Uh, the Department of Defense. But then in order to supply that high grade steel that you need for those for that military equipment, you need a vibrant and financially sustainable uh, rest of the sector, which is the lower quality stuff that you need to be able to produce at high volumes to make the high quality stuff uh, viable.
0: Now, as I understand it, and listening to President Trump a lot, you think the problem is, in his words, China, 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 right? But China is not one of the big exporters of steel to the United States, right? So, so what can they do?
1: That is correct. So under the Obama administration, actually, America erected lots of trade defenses against Chinese steel. However, China represents a huge share of global steel production. Globally, there still just is much more steel capacity than the world really needs. And over the next couple of decades, it's likely that that kind of structural demand for steel will decline. The world has too much capacity. And that means that prices are depressed by that. And China is the main source of that overcapacity. Recently, they have been cutting their capacity. They're not, you know, the pure villains in this tale. They've been cutting their plants because they want to try and get pollution down. They want to get more kind of sustainable growth. They've been doing the sorts of things that Western world rich countries would like. Under pressure from them, it should be said. But still, the Americans say they're not going fast enough. Uh, They need to stop giving subsidies to their steel industry. Um, they need to clamp down harder. They need to be more transparent about you know, what they're producing and what they're exporting.
0: But how is it going to try and make them do that?
1: Well, so no one really knows what is going to come out of the Trump administration. I'm not sure even Donald Trump himself knows um, what he will decide. The options on the table seem to be some kind of broad tariff. Um, and we know that he's very keen on tariffs. Another option would be a much more targeted uh, quota-tariff hybrid system where they might you know, really hone in on certain products, and and to try and limit the effect on domestic consumers of steel who would be hurt by more expensive steel. So, so you know, they it, they could go in with the, with a hammer or, or a chisel, or they could do nothing. They could say, look, hey, we we've got this report that's that's found that that you were doing wrong. Let's start a negotiation. Otherwise, we will hit you with a hammer.
0: But if it's a hammer or a chisel, the first casualties are presumably not going to be China itself, but the countries that are the major exporters of steel to America.
1: Exactly. And and so there's both the problem of American consumers of steel, but then also what America's allies will do. China is such a small exporter. If you if you really do a broad trade defense, you end up hitting countries like Canada, the EU, Brazil precisely the countries who themselves are being hurt by Chinese overcapacity. So so one of the main risks that everyone's trying to point out is that if you behave too aggressively on on steel and trade, then you actually end up alienating the very partners that you should be trying to work with to tackle this problem of Chinese overcapacity.
0: I mentioned at the beginning of this that we may be on the brink of a trade war. It seems like we've been saying that ever since Donald Trump was elected. Uh, we've cried wolf a lot. I mean, how serious is the risk this time?
1: Yeah, so I think my anxiety levels will finally uh, decline um, over the next few months. So the difference is that over the past year, there's been lots of Trump deadlines, right? So there's been infrastructure week or, you know, trailed deadlines. The difference here is that there are legal deadlines. This is a legal deadline by which the Commerce Department has to send Donald Trump this report. And then the president has 90 days to act. So far, he, he hasn't been given any options. Now he will have options, and I think he will do something.
0: Samir Keynes, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Next. Over the past few years, multinational firms have been salivating at the prospect of consumer growth in India and taking a bet that it will be a future consumer superpower, especially now that Chinese growth is flagging. Companies such as Amazon, Unilever, Ikea, McDonald's, Zara and Starbucks have all been looking to the Indian middle class as their next giant market. But the bumper growth hasn't materialised yet. Company bosses are starting to wonder where all the customers are. Oh, well, I'm joined on the line now by Stanley Pinyal, our South Asia business and finance correspondent from Mumbai. Morning, Stanley. Good morning. Let's start with trying to get our hands around the size of the problem. India has... Well, over 1.3 billion people, a fast-growing economy. Presumably, it has a pretty huge middle class. How big is it?
2: Well, it has a huge middle class insofar as if you multiply any number by 1.3 billion, you're going to go get something pretty big. Uh, But what is striking, in fact, is how small that that percentage is. In fact, I I think it's much smaller than most companies would think it is. So to give you an example, to be in the top 10% of earners in India, so there are 800 million adults in India, give or take, to be in the top 10%, so the top 80 million, uh, requires making just over 200,000 rupees. You're talking about $3,000. So, you know, defining the middle class is, is a kind of pretty slippery concept. But if you told multinational companies that only about 80 million people uh, had incomes of over $3,000 i think they'd be pretty surprised uh, certainly the narrative that we've heard from from management consultants from bankers and so on is that india has a middle class of 300 million 400 million people and that that it that it keeps on growing uh, in fact that takes a very loose definition of the middle class um, and 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 one that i think most marketers wouldn't wouldn't really accept uh, as being middle class at all
0: so the actual Indian middle class is not really a market for these Western multinationals that we've been talking of.
2: Oh, oh, certainly not. Nobody in multinationals think that we are targeting the middle of the Indian income distribution. Uh, that would be Indian GDP per head is about seventeen hundred dollars uh, a year. If you take the median, it's actually quite a bit, quite a bit lower than that. So when they talk about a, a middle class that they're targeting, it's a, a sort of global middle class, and and that's what's what's very small in India. If you look at the at the median Indian, uh, the median Indian makes uh, around sixty-five thousand rupees a year. That's about a thousand. Dollars a year. So if a company says that they're targeting 400 million Indians, you have to ask, you know, what what is their strategy uh, when it comes to to targeting somebody who's making a thousand dollars a year? That that is in India. That is less than a Starbucks per day per person. Uh, it's less than the price of an iPhone. So I, I think you have to be very skeptical when company chief executives uh, trundle through India. Uh, and give interviews saying India is going to be their next huge market. And that's the kind of rhetoric we've heard from the likes of Apple. It's the kind of rhetoric we've heard from the likes of Unilever and from Starbucks. And a lot of the time, in fact, they'll be targeting people who simply cannot afford uh, the products that they're trying to sell. Recently, uh, we caught up with a member of this fabled uh, middle class, uh, a fellow by the name of Rakesh Menon. Uh, We found him uh, at a shopping mall in Tane, which is a, a prosperous suburb. Of uh, Mumbai. Now he isn't middle class in the in the Indian sense. Uh, he's he's comfortably in the top ten percent. Uh, of earners, uh, but even then, he says he can't afford many of the things that many marketers would assume he'd be able to. I
4: can't afford to now be as uh, trigger happy when it comes to purchasing uh, things in uh, like electronics. And I have always admired the iPhone. I mean, I, I think it's a superb product, amazing user experience. But but I think it's way too overpriced. I mean, if I have to pay about a hundred thousand rupees for the iPhone 10, or about eighty thousand rupees or 70,000 rupees for the iPhone 8. Uh, I'd rather buy the Galaxy S8 which is what I ended up doing uh, because I saw a lot more value in that. Okay. As I walk around this store there are a lot of things that I see that I'm going to need pretty soon as I move into my new home. From a fridge to a, to a television to an AC to even to uh, cooking appliances and washing machines. So So these are all going to be heavy expenditures. I probably would have to settle for a 42 inch normal non smart TV because I just can't afford that kind of expenditure given the other things that I have to fit into the home. So somewhere something's gotta give.
0: Stanley, that's really interesting. So India is nothing like China in this sense. China is far ahead as a consumer market for Western firms.
2: No, that's right. And there are two main differences. Uh, The first one is India is much poorer than China. I mean, people know this. Uh, Indian GDP per head is seventeen hundred dollars a head. China is is much higher. It's six and a half thousand dollars, I think. Um, So already uh, India starts from way behind. Uh, What people might not realize is how much more unequal uh, India is uh, compared to China, and that's because in the last kind of two three decades or so, a lot of the benefits of economic growth Uh, have fallen um, a little bit to the very poor. Um, there are a lot of people in India who went from making a dollar fifty to two dollars a day, two dollars to three dollars a day, and so on. Um, but mainly to the very rich. Um, so in the past uh, thirty-five years, between 1980 and uh, 2014, uh, the top one percent uh, seized about a third of all the new income uh, that was made, um, compared to the middle forty so, percent. So Indians, kind of just above the median, who seized twenty-three percent. So one percent. Of Indians um, captured more of the fresh income than the middle 40%. Uh, if you look at China, the top 1% uh, in the same period uh, got 15% richer, while the middle 40% got 43% richer. So that's where the middle classes come from, really. In China, what you saw is a lot of people who became middle class by uh, going to work in factories in coastal regions. India doesn't have that. India doesn't have this kind of mass manufacturing uh, industry uh, which created a middle class instead uh, it has farmers who got a little bit richer which is which is great and it has rich people who kind of became millionaires and billionaires which is also good for them Uh, but it has a missing middle class and that's really what we're what we're looking at.
0: And if those trends continue presumably it will be many many years to come before India really does have a large middle class or are there signs of any sort of structural change in the Indian economy that might transform that?
2: One thing that's interesting, Simon, is that the traditional sources uh, of the middle class aren't aren't doing so well. So uh, there are about 27 million households that make over $11,000 a year. That's two percent of the population, and that's what you could might call a, a middle class of sorts. Um, of those, uh, 10 million, roughly, so around uh, a third of the 27 million, are government employees, either working for government uh, or managers at, at state-owned firms. Those jobs are disappearing, so you wouldn't expect to see uh, to see kind of new middle class members joining through that route um, in the private sector the biggest source of the middle-class jobs is uh, the IT sector and the IT sector in recent years hasn't done so well there's been a bit of a backlash against globalization uh, thanks to uh, Donald Trump and others um, and more widely uh, those jobs are being taken over by machines so a lot of the jobs done by the likes of Engineers at Tata Consultancy Services and Infosys uh, are now are now themselves done by by computers. So uh, at the very least. Uh, those industries aren't growing as fast as they used to. So it's not clear that you're going to have a rapidly expanding middle class uh, in, the, in the current uh, framework. Um, what you might see are people who are currently uh, below those income levels, uh, growing to become middle class, so, so other businesses and so on. But it's, it's far from being a given uh, that, that you can create the jobs, the well-paying jobs, that would create a huge middle class in India uh, of anywhere near the size that we saw in China.
0: Stanley Pinal, thank you very much. And finally, after all that talk of the squeezed middle, have you made a New Year's resolution to go to the gym? Sasha Nauta, our finance correspondent, has been working out if the gym business is in good shape. Hello, Sasha. <laughs>
2: Sorry.
0: <laughs> I, I must apologise for the puns. It's it's too, too hard to resist. But joking aside, is the assumption that Uh, gym membership gets a boost in in january is that correct
3: absolutely simon um gym businesses are, are having their busiest time right now because as you would expect the day after boxing day when we've all stuffed our faces and even more so on january 1st as we wake up with the best of intentions we all go onto the internet and start searching for ways to get healthy and a week or two later this tends to this sort of intention tends to convert into actual action, and we, we start joining all sorts of gyms. Um, and this is really a phenomenon happening all over the world. So yes, it's a it's it's a busy period for gyms in January.
0: And what are the trends in the gym business? What 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 is popular these days?
3: So I'm glad you asked. Number of trends every year, of course, bring, brings its fads, and some of them stick, and some some we forget. F- again, fast. But this year, according to the American College of Sports Medicine, which has asked um, hundreds of of fitness professionals around the world what they think the big trend will be. And the outcome is HIIT, which stands for High Intensity Impact Training. And I'm sure several of our readers will recognize this, but if they haven't, they'll probably hear about it this year. In short, it is a um, high interval training, basically, where you do a crazy amount of Push ups or, or pull ups or whatever, you have a sort of 10, 15 second break and then you do a similarly intensive exercise again. And it appeals particularly to a busy urbanite type, shall we say, who want to get the most out of a gym session in as little time as possible. So you see them popping up all over gyms in London at the moment.
0: But have you tried it?
3: As a good field journalist, I have, of course, given it a go um, and I can safely tell you it's murder.
0: <laughs> well, that hints, I guess, at my next question. How long do these resolutions tend to last? I mean, do, do we then see a lot of people starting to stop attending gyms in February, March?
3: Yes, absolutely. So again, that's part of a pattern. So the, the first round of regret, as I call it, sort of the, the January regret for the chocolate oranges and the, and the champagne and mulled wine, um, leads you to the gym. But the second round of regret tends to kick in around March time, when a lot of people realise they don't actually like going to gyms, um, and they'd rather spend their time and money elsewhere. So attendance tends to drop to normal levels again around March, April is is what gyms um, uh, say, generally say. Now, in the, in the old gym model where you'd sign up, where you'd be captured for a sort of 12-month membership, this would be a real Well, this would be great for gyms because they would have an awful lot of inactive members who were paying fees um, but not actually attending. An increasing amount of budget gyms um, now actually offer more pay-as-you-go memberships where you pay per month and uh, for for people who think they may they may just fall into of course nobody thinks they do but they may just fall into the category of by March April I might fall out of love with a gym again I would highly recommend that they consider those sort of less string attached uh, memberships.
0: Sasha from what you're saying it seemed to me that the really good business to be in would be sportswear because presumably people who join the gyms have to Buy their trainers and their kit, and then even if they don't end up using it very long.
3: Absolutely, and actually connected to gym membership, um, some data by Cardlytics, who look at how people use their debit and credit cards, suggests that the week before people typically join a gym shows a big spike in spending um, by those same people in sportswear shops, which makes total sense, right? So as you say, indeed, that's a very good business to be in, indeed, regardless to how long people will use these
0: items. Sasha thank you very much. I feel better already. <laughs> Thanks, Simon. If you've got any thoughts on steel tariffs, India's middle class or gym memberships, please do get in touch via Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radio at And that's all for this episode of Money Talks. To read more about everything discussed in the show, pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist or visit our website at economist.com. I'm Simon Long. In London, this is The Economist.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more